Oh. Uh, but... Oh, I know you. I know all three of you. Yeah, Spawn Ranch. Spawn Ranch, yeah. Woo! I don't know your name, but I remember that hair. And you, I remember your white little face. And you were on a horsey. Yeah. Uh, you are... I'm the devil. And I'm here to do the devil's business. No, I was dumber than that. Something like... Rex. Kachudum Tex! Tex! Your favorite podcast at the intersection of faith and fear, where every week we discuss what scares us in order to find what saves us. This is the fear of God. Speaking to you right now is one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey. And guys, he was here, uh, but he was kind of acting real funky. And he said he was the devil and that he was here to do some devil shit. That's not that's not verbatim, but... Uh, maybe he'll be back soon, hopefully in a more sober frame of mind, but we'll see. In the meantime, allow me to welcome you listeners back into What Saves Us, uh, one of two pairs of overarching podcast series this year, this time featuring films and media that nurture your wonder, that invigorate your awe, that enrich your humanity, not to overstate things, but that are saving you now. And correcting myself on the fly, it's not two pairs, it's one pair. So one pair of podcast series. You like that? No need to edit that out. Last week, we offered up powerful podcast content for both the Hoi Polloi and the masses of society as we said our prayers with the moving and ministerial Calvary. This week, for the first time ever, we'll be getting our QT on while we sick our dog on the devil's nuts with Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. But I'm getting ahead of myself, because here at The Fear of God, we explore. We don't explain, except for right now, when I explain that you can find every fog and fear of God thing imaginable at thefearofgodpodcast.com, such as essays, team bios, episode archives, merchandise, read! 
There you are, brother. <laughs> people, that's nice. Uh, people that's nice. Uh, on the pod won't necessarily see or even hear what I did, but I just no, did. That's all right. I just did the, right. you know. The nice you thing. did the Leo point. Love that. Love that moment so much. Love that moment so much. Hey, Your man. Booze doesn't need a buddy. That's for sure. Hey, friend. Um, oh, man. You know what really makes me laugh sometimes about our show is like, we really want to appeal to highbrow folk and then think about okay fine let me let me check this out and see what's going on and, and i'm like the dog biting the devil's nuts like oh okay there's nothing highbrow here it's like no no no, wait till the end i mean it is quentin tarantino man like he's it's true. uh it's true. he's a he's wild he's a wild and crazy guy he's he's got a unique flavor uh um, not in the steve martin sense of the word no no sure. not quite not quite um so uh, we hope everybody had a nice thanksgiving um i don't have any business time do you have Did, any business didn't need too much no? no business time you want to go straight to richmond you want to take us in <clears throat> i just really i need to work on my accent here but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get go, mm, mm, it's not gonna do it uh welcome once more to uh, <laughs> richmond amc greyhounds and uh ted lasso season two this time discussing episode seven headspace and episode eight man city with tv guideposts tv guideposts there it is a reread headspace this is All right. Um, let me get let me get a sense real quick. What is this episode? So this is the one Roy and Keeley are having some troubles. Mm, um, well, mm. just because Roy is ubiquitous, he's he's you know he's here, he's there, he's, he's every, here, he's there, he's there, every yeah, everywhere. That's true. Um, <laughs> and so uh, and it's also like, yeah, we're continuing the downward spiral with Nathan. We're seeing more evidence of that. Uh, so so much of that is not with me. No, not you, Nathan no. Shelley. Right. right. Okay. Um, and uh, and so yeah, but I mean, the main substance of the episode, the ma- the main plot line is is kind of involving Roy and Keeley's relationship, and Roy is just so present, and Keeley doesn't have any time for herself, and and so yeah, there are seeds of question marks around Roy and Keeley's relationship through the latter half of this season that I don't particularly care for because I love them together. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so so fundamentally what happens in the episode is just the, the new team dynamic is, is kind of working where they've just come off of a big win. The big win was thanks to Nathan for his, you know, playing, calling the park the bus play. And he's kind of basking in the glow. He's checking out the internet comments. He's scrolling around. He's, uh, you know, he he even tries to make. He's the wonder kid. He's the wonder kid. And it even makes like, man, it, it, it's really frustrating the interaction he has with his father because his father is so clearly very dismissive and 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 reductive to anything that Nathan could possibly achieve. And it's honestly it's quite painful to kind of see and to know okay this is not gonna this is not gonna go to a good place um but uh fundamentally yeah we have three we have the three plot lines we have roy and keely we have nathan further down his spiral and then we have uh ted finally tries out therapy solo therapy what you what you got how does how does how does that go for him uh not not too well boy that that an opening salvo <laughs> though is so delightfully awkward where he just he cannot get comfortable he can't sit still he can't do anything and dr sharon is just like absolutely uh-huh. like she's just standing there just sort of 
watching the train wreck happen right in front of her. It's really it's it it's awkwardly hilarious. Well, and then yes, so I do love. I'm with you. I don't love cracks in the Roy Keeley ship, as it were. Um, you know, weird feelings about the Nate trajectory, but I do love the Sharon Ted scenes in this. And there's two pretty strong ones. The first one is that, but that culminates in Sharon saying, why don't you tell me what happened the other night? Referring to walking off the field. Mm. And he just gets up and says, yeah, I don't want to do this and walks just out. Boom. Um, bails. <laughs> and I do think these two scenes are pretty powerful because, because it's so funny. You just said, Oh, it's, it's mildly humorous. The longer it builds, there's a world where ugh, I know I'm, I'm, I can't be pleased. Mm-hmm. There's a world where to me, they almost tilt Ted too far, uh, with some of the absurdity this season. Um, it, I, I know it's character driven overcompensation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet some of it, it's like, uh, okay, this is stretching <laughs> believability, except that then you do get really rich stuff, like what happens in those two sessions and what's going to come right later on. Right. But when he does return, Sharon says, surprised you came back. He says, yeah, well, I don't quit things, which is going to have a, a lovely portent for other stuff to come. Mm-hmm. And then it ends in him storming out again after he blows up at her. You have an hourly rate for only 50 minutes of work kind of really criticizing her yeah, entire vocation. Right. So yeah, I think I think that's great. Um this is I know you're a fan of it, uh, but it's got one of the seminal Sharon lines. Can I share it? Which I think is it yeah. Is it is it is there three scenes? Does he come back a third so time? So he comes back a third time. So the first time he is just awkward and uncomfortable and then he bails. The second yeah. time he comes back and he sits down because he doesn't quit things, but that's when he says the really hurtful things to her, like you charge an hour for a fifty-minute session. That's right. You don't yeah. care. You know, he says this is just all BS. Um, we're not used to hearing Ted cuss, and so it's like it's 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 pretty hurtful. And Sharon just kind of takes it. The third time, she is very professional but very direct that it really bothered her and hurt her feelings, and she calls him to the carpet on it by saying like do you not care about your players? Would you coach for free? And he said, I would. And she said, but do you? And he's like, no, no, I right. don't. And, uh, and he said, and she's like, why do you think I know you care about your players? I don't remember her exact language, but he's like, you know, yeah, she's yeah. like, you care about your players. Why do you think I don't care about my patients? And then, uh, thank you for deferring to me. This is on par with me, possibly even above be curious, not judgmental. It is at least on par for me, it might even be above when Sharon says to him, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. And I think that is such a an incredible bit of, of just dynamite wisdom because I think it is so powerful and I think it is so true. I resonate with it so much and it is helpful for me when things have come into my life that I'm not comfortable with or observations about myself that I don't like. I love so much remembering that moment and knowing okay the truth will set me free but first it'll piss me off and um i just I, that's that's an incredible line of dialogue and i think it is an incredibly profound observation about the truth of the human condition and i love it so much love it love it love it well, yeah and i i love that it comes at the end of a, another little run she says self-care can be scary 
fight or flight as a natural response you just happen to do both impressive range really <laughs> <laughs> what does he say he says Meryl Streep look out or something or like uh, <laughs> he cites somebody and he's like Meryl Streep better watch out or something it's, it's pretty funny um, I will note one fun Royism this episode is when he yells the word whistle he doesn't actually <laughs> blow a whistle and incites some allergic reaction to the metal in the whistle oh man it's um, so but funny it, but that practice scene culminates in him trying to uh, chastise Jamie. Jamie gives back, hey, this bit of sportsly wisdom and says, since so-and-so is my teammate, I should trust him to do what's best. And Brett Goldstein has this great moment <laughs> where he just like does this facial expression that kind of follows a clock. Like yes. he's just looking around the scene as he processes what That's Jamie so Tartus just said to him. And then he's, then he yells the F word and storms off. Cause he realizes what it means for his personal relationship. Right. <laughs> Jamie's like, I didn't even say anything bad that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do love, and I, had I s- Oh, go ahead. No, you, you No, All I was going to say is my last note on this episode is just how painful watching Nate's Twitter spiral is. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, it is, it's rough. It's yeah. rough. Yeah. And, and because you just know, and what I do think is powerful about that in its usage in the show is what it is saying, mm, how it is a reflection of what we actually do. Like, yes. like how much yes. this thing can get a hold of us and, and, and wheedle itself into our spirits and our psyches and, and come out in pretty devastating ways. So anyway, no, I just think that, drum beat that happens in this episode is pretty pretty heavy and sad yeah well and the fact that so two two things that make it all the more tragic is number one it's one comment amidst an absolute storm of positive comments i guarantee you most people don't receive as many positive internet comments as nathan had in that moment but it this was one comment where some internet idiot had basically said eh, he still looks kind of like a loser and nathan just completely falls apart but then takes it out on will Mm -hmm. and will has been so clearly and and obviously trying to get on nathan's good side ever since he messed up the lavender and messed up all the rest of the stuff will just seems like a, a a nice kid a good kid trying hard and nathan just absolutely destroys him i do love 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 that coach beard calls him out for the colin thing because first ghost beard yes um first Nathan is cruel to Colin. And then I love the way Nathan, the way beard calls him out is because he says, no, you, cause he's like, yes, I, I, you know, I was a bit rude and he's like, it was personal and it was weird. And he said, do better. And I had mef- yeah. referenced in an earlier TV guidepost for this season that the do better, which is what Phoebe had written to the boy at her school, do better keeps coming up about just do better. And, um, and it, it, that does culminate in a pretty funny moment where he's like, the door's behind you. Nathan walks out and he's like, wait, this is my office. And when he walks back in, Beard is just gone. <laughs> yeah. Like Batman. Yeah. He has just vanished. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I love that so much, but, uh, yeah, it's, it is really, really painful to see him take out so much of that finite, uh, uh frustration on Will who clearly does not deserve it and was clearly trying to just do something nice and, and get in, get in Nathan's good graces and it backfired on him, which sucks. Um, so yeah, that's all do I have. You, uh, do you want to venture to man city? What, uh, an incredible episode this is. Um, 
incredible for a number of reasons and culminating in one of the some of the finest on-screen Ted Ted Lasso storytelling that we get. Um, Yes, this is the team is going back to face Manchester City, which is the team that got them relegated back when Jamie Tart was playing for them. Uh, And now they're going back to Wembley Stadium and they are going to be playing against Manchester City. But not that Wembley Stadium. But not that (laughs) Wembley Stadium. Um, And they're going to be playing against Manchester City. A lot of character stuff comes out in this episode. A lot of uh, meaty things happen. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's just... One of the things I will say, because it doesn't open with that, it actually opens with Dr. Sharon yep. um, and her on her bicycle. I love, I will say this, it is, I am not, I did not come up with this on my own. This is something that I have read and absorbed and learned over time, that it is something of a recent common trope for shows featuring a predominantly white cast to cast a specifically black female therapist Mm -hmm. in a role to kind of help um the main character or a bunch of characters kind of make their progress through whatever journey that they're going on um which can be utilized and leveraged as merely a substitute for previous iterations of a knowledgeable magical mystical uh black character help merely helping white people along their journey that's a an old literary trope and this can be a new iteration of it. What I think is brilliant about this season and specifically brilliant about Sharon's character is they give her a tremendous amount of depth in this episode that subverts the possibilities of that trope. They give her a substantive arc. They give her a challenge. They give her a place and a pattern to grow so that she becomes an autonomous character who, yes, does help these players along their path because she's a therapist and a very, very good one, um, but she is not merely that to the service of this story. And I love so much that that really shines in this episode that she has an arc. I love so much when she tells Ted, you know, Ted keeps calling her, he calls her toxic Kermit the Frog voice because he wants to try to liven her up <laughs> a little bit. And she and she confesses to him about how her bike is her safe place and this scared her today. And then she's like, I don't need a pep talk. I don't need any of that. I just uh, wanted to tell you how I was feeling. And I just I just love that so much. They really humanize her. They really make her three-dimensional, and I love that so much about uh, how they treat Sharon in this show and in this episode particularly. Yeah, I think, I think this is a good one for she and Ted, but I think this episode specifically has a number of really uh, formidable scenes to it, one of which that bears mentioning is the Roy Phoebe scene in mm. the car. I mean, it's mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. It really is. And she's been, she's, he's been called in or an authority figure, a parental figure has been called in because Phoebe's cursing a lot. And, uh, clearly the fault lies with Roy and <laughs> they're in the car unpacking that. And he's feeling some guilt and, uh, sort of su- uh, proposing some distance for them and and then he just says sometimes i get concerned i'm infecting you with the worst parts of me Mm. and she says a a number of things but one of which is i stand up to bullies because of you and he says you're better than me and and the actor is getting emotional and and she delivers just a a hell of a a line here and says i'm as good as the best you i just think that's an incredibly powerful moment wonderful Um, 
It's so wonderful. And then she's like, Can we play Princess and the Dragon? He said, Will you be the dragon? <laughs> will you be the princess this time? Let me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let me be the dragon this time. And he's like, Well, you better affix the wand. Oh, God, I love their relationship so much. Um, I love the, um, before we get to some of the heavier stuff in the final moments of the episode, I love Sam's going to go meet his mystery date. And it is, you know, we know it's Rebecca. And Rebecca and Sam finally culminate, but it like he has to get the Isaac McAdoo haircut beforehand, and uh-huh. uh, it's just that that's so delightful. His one, his one, he gets one per season. Um, everybody gets one per season, and it's so just oh man, it's it's just it's really wonderful stuff. Now I gotta say, I don't want to camp out here too Same. long. Um, I don't have many of the complicated feelings that you and most other people have about season two, about certain things. Like there are certain things that people have complicated feelings about with season two that I don't have complicated feelings. One of the things that I do is the relationship between Sam and Rebecca, because on one hand, I love both of those characters. And what do I love more than two characters? I love having a relationship together and that being a wonderful thing. Like I love that, but there is a power dynamic at play. She is his boss. Yes, it subverts the typical tropes that we're used to seeing in that in that pattern. And so one of the reasons I don't want to dwell here too long is because I'm still fleshing out how I feel about that. Um, maybe something as I watch the other episodes that come past this where their relationship gets a bit more attention, uh, some of that will become more clear to me. But um, but it's definitely something that I have some some complicated feelings about. I want to just be on board because I love them. But I don't know that I'm ready to to be fully on board yet. No, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I do think the only reason that storyline is not in totality dismissible and and worthy of dismissing mm-hmm. is that their interactions before it's revealed to each other is unknown to who they are yes, in other words right mm-hmm. yes if if it had been a traditional kind of meet cute this is going to happen with these two characters that's, that's a re- such a terrible red flag yeah absolutely and and really super incredibly problematic and still might be mm-hmm. but the only reason it's at least maybe zone is yes how the relationship initiates and forms uh from go and no i do think i do think that's incredibly fair and i think uh what is unfortunate about that is like from the minute those two characters even begin to to give in to those feelings as a viewer i and maybe you're echoing this too it's like well i I still can't really like embrace this yeah like yeah i want I want you, I want happiness for the characters I love. Yes, absolutely. Kind of what you just said. And yet at the same time, even though I can forgive how the relationship started, Mm -hmm. it's still, yeah. 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 So no, I think that's incredibly fair. You know, she calls out the age thing. The age thing doesn't even bother me. It's the, it's the employment power dynamics. That's the, that's the part that I get sort of a little weird about. Um, I've, I've known multiple people in my life for whom they are richly and deeply in love. And there is a wide age gap between them, both, you know, instances where the, um, the husband is older and instances where the wife is older, but it's, it is the kind of thing that, um, the, the employment power dynamics are, are, yeah, but maybe that will flesh out, uh, you know, as we watch the last four, uh, over the course of the next couple of episodes, but I do, I do feel the need because Ted Lasso is a comedy to throw in a funny bit here, which is, (laughs) and I, 
winked at it earlier, but Ted's attempts to ground them at Wembley. It's like, this is the, you know, it's just like the, the pitch you've been on. Like, well, no, actually it's different size. (laughs) Like, wait, these are different sizes. They're not, they're not the same size. No. Okay. Okay. Well, I remember when queen did live a, it's like, no, 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 that's a different Wembley. Like, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, just leave it all ago. Okay. They're like, listen. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. great. Um, To me, the two, the two biggest scenes that remain are the confession scene butts on three and then the final, well, no, that's the, the, the Jamie Roy and then subsequent Ted moment, mm. you know, are kind of the mm. big tent, tent poles left to cover here. And so we can save the end for the end. I really love it. This, ah, friggin' Nate, like, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I feel just kind of, you know, uh, uh, have a knife in my back toward from the show because it's like guys you're just like playing with my heart so much Mm -hmm. because you've got such a lovely scene like that round table confessions scene Mm pre-game and yet that becomes a key linchpin to kind of nate's ascension as it were um but i do on its face it's a great scene uh just just these characters initiated by ted who who you know, takes a risk on vulnerability and confesses to what really happened to him. And then each of them in turn have their own confession. They make it's, it's, it's just a really wonderful. Scene. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I do love the scene and yes, it has a different flavor knowing how the scene will be leveraged to a more painful thing towards the end of the season. But I do love the scene. Um, I didn't know the first time I watched it for obvious reasons. I mean, they, they, they get their butts handed to them by man city and I didn't know how everything was going to play out when Jamie's father, who we already know he has such a tumultuous relationship with, when Jamie's father comes in in the end, all we've seen of him and his interaction with Jamie is towards the tail end of season one where he's just like throwing right. things and yelling at him and Ted almost walks in. And and uh, and so like that's all we've seen before. So then to see it play out so painfully and so um, just – glaringly in front of everybody um it is it is a really devastating moment culminating of course in jamie just being fully fed up and punching his father right in the face knocking him down beard swoops in like a rescuer and ushers the father out the out the door but then oops yeah yeah oops um but then culminating in man i said about the you know the last episode that that was one of my favorite lines about truth will set you free. One of the best moments that this show has ever given us is, do you want to share it? No, you can go ahead. The, the, the moment when I'm a giver, the moment when Roy, after seeing what Jamie has gone through in front of everybody, Roy steps forward. The, the history that those characters have had, mm-hmm. even in this season, mm-hmm. the tension that those characters right. have had, all co- all goes aside and Roy steps forward and just hugs Jamie and Jamie begins to to weep it is really affecting it is very powerful it has an effect on everybody in the locker room and I will let you share this next part uh culminating in Ted not really being able to stay in the room anymore he has to leave and he calls Sharon to share I I was shocked the first time that I heard this cuz it wasn't even on my radar it was on my radar that oh yeah that well what's yeah. so funny about that I'm sorry I'm sorry to cut you yeah. off what's so funny about you saying that is watching the scene the first time I thought the scene being 
the Jamie Roy moment mm-hmm. and the confrontation between Jamie and his dad, I was like, why? It it felt creatively negligent to not have Ted inter- intervene, mm, mm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, he's the coach. It's like Coach Taylor. Like, Coach yeah. Taylor would have... Oh, he'd have been on him. ...walloped yes. that dude. Mm-hmm. Um, as a really fun asterisk to that scene, mm-hmm. watching it the first time, my wife was like... I- I have no idea what this man is saying. So we turned on the subtitles because <laughs> his accent is so thick. <laughs> thick but, yeah. um, uh, but anyway, so, so watching it the first time I was like, golly, why is, why do you have Ted not interacting in the scene? He's meant to be the protector, the, the mm-hmm. father figure sort mm-hmm. of to these guys. And so it, it, it really has a fantastic payoff in a pretty startling way. Yeah. Uh, when he does call Sharon, uh, and just says, I mean, the the literal lines are, my father killed himself when I was 16. That happened to me and to my mom. I just wanted you to know. Mm. And there are times when I don't know, like Ted's first panic attack in season one is very, uh, quote unquote, out of nowhere, but feels, oh, wow, new shade, new shade of character here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the disillusion of his marriage in that episode five final scene, you know, there, there, there are points in the track where you can indicate, okay, this is where the show takes a new level. You know, uh, have you played a lot of darts, Ted, Mm, that kind of mm -hmm, thing. Uh, mm -hmm. This is one of those moments where, wow, we get an entire new landscape. We kind of didn't know existed that, uh, to, to, um, headspaces, last uh episode seven's credit i mean ted why are you back i don't quit things like this these are given whole new layers mm-hmm. of dimension meaning mm-hmm. when you realize what he's carrying around um, yeah so no it's a it's a it is a powerful choice mm-hmm. on the show's part um you know and it 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 does ratchet up the kind of investment and emotionality uh and depth of the show and of that character. Yeah, absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. Um, only because it sets up the next episode that we're going to have that small interaction, uh, between beard and, uh, Ted where beard says, Hey, I'm going to shake some of this off. So I'm not going to drive back with you guys. And, um, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, uh, Ted says back to him, he's like, bird by bird, right? <laughs> so he flips him off. <laughs> It's uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty funny little moment. I mean, it's got a, a little bit more of a gravity to it, you know, from what they're all going through. But well, you're trying to call out funny bits, probably, maybe a top ten Ted Lasso funny bit is uh, Brendan Hunt, uh, a beard flipping over the the railing. <laughs> <laughs> when 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 he's trying to walk away from his disappointment at the game's outcome, yes. and then, that's hysterical. And then, it's but then hysterical. he just like pops right up and just like keeps walking as if oh yes. oh man oh yes yes the whole, thing. the whole thing. It's not just that he flips; it's that oh. it's how he rebounds from it. No, it's so um, well, it's funny you say that. So before episode nine, which is the beard focused one, we'll get to next week. Nine, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. How eight ends? I was like, this is. I don't know what is next yeah you know like it it has an ominous kind of air about it no absolutely Um, absolutely well the whole thing is very it's very sort of dark night of the soul um which is fascinating to come so mid well not mid-season i mean we're episode eight we're on the last leg as it were but it's very much the the dark night of the soul before everything's going to keep culminating to where the season will end um but yeah 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's a strong. Speaking one. Of, speaking of ends, <clears throat> that has been another installment of uh, TV guideposts. Um, this time discussing Headspace and Man City, two episodes that feature growth and revelation about characters we know and love. Some some questionable revelations, some powerful revelations. Tune in next week when we learn a little bit about the nightlife of um i don't know the town we're in right now but uh you know where beard uh, uh has has a little foray into the nightlife of his new uh home that has been tv guideposts speaking of speaking of some great music it's a great soundtrack mm-hmm I never thought we would cover a Quentin Tarantino film on this show. I never thought. Maybe Death Proof. You say that at the Death- same time. He's he's a little more... Um, I would have believed we would cover him before we covered, you know, the mission or Calvary or something. <laughs> that's a good but, point. No, that's but I know really what you're point. saying. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, this was submitted to us. Uh, we are talking today about Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, his ninth formal film, called Once Upon a Time... In Hollywood, it was submitted to us by listener Hunter Robinson, and I'm going to let Hunter take it away with his thoughts on this film. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood may be an odd choice for the What Saves Us series, but it's the first movie that came to mind when considering what to submit. Its significance derives from a few key elements, but two in particular are inspired choices. Having Charles Manson on screen for just a few minutes is Tarantino at his most subversive, Tarantino reduces Manson's part in this version of 1969 to a comedic moment where J.C. brings sees Manson and says, Who's this shaggy a-hole? Manson's family does refer to Charlie several times, so you're aware of his influence. His presence and the true story are undoubtedly in the back of your mind the first time you see the movie. However, Tarantino has completely removed the audience's fear of Manson and his family by the end. This brings me to the other aspect which is easily Tarantino at his most sentimental. The effect created by having Sharon Tate survive is incredible. For decades, Tate's tragic death made it impossible to think of any other aspect of her life. Tarantino rewrote her story and gave her a life beyond just being a victim of a horrific crime. I will attempt to tie this back to why this is my choice for what saves us without rambling. I moved to L.A. in 2006, wanting to become a writer-director. I spent three and a half years there, and I learned early on that I didn't have what it takes to pass the endurance test that is making it in Hollywood. Part of it was not being as talented a writer as I hoped I was. Unfortunately, the other part comes from being young and and choosing to enjoy myself when I should have been working to become a better writer and get more production experience. I moved back home and lived with my parents for a while until I found steady work. I felt like a failure, and for years I looked back on my time in L.A. and had nothing but regrets. It was the period that defined my life, and I thought it always would. Ironically, a movie that takes place in Los Angeles and turns history into a fairy tale has helped me choose to look back on my time in L.A. with fondness. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood fills me with hope, and it even inspired me to write again. That is amazing. Hunter. Thank you, Hunter. Hunter, I think that's wonderful, man. First of all, I'm so glad you're writing again. Um, 
I just uh, as as a, a fellow writer, I just I love so much that that you're doing that. And uh, please, please, uh, for what it's worth, please by all means keep it up. I've never even read your stuff, but please keep writing. Um, well, and and if I can interject there too, sure. as someone who spent uh, a very short time in L.A. with Reed Lackey, uh, good lord. 18 years ago, <laughs> um, I did uh, Hunter. I, I empathize with your, the residual feelings you described there of feeling like, okay, well I didn't have what it takes. I, I couldn't cut it. Um, you know, this, this aspirational thing I didn't rise to the occasion for and, you know, have had to wrestle with those feelings over the years. Mm. So I really appreciate your vulnerability and kind of willingness to put yourself out there for us in that way. And, and yes, to sort of reconcile some of those feelings to potential productivity now. So yeah. proud of you. Thankful for your, for your sharing that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we don't, you know, trivial bits is a segment that kind of, uh, has fallen mostly by the wayside, but do you mind if I, if I introduce just a couple of little, little personal notes that connect to trivial bits? It. Okay. So yep. more than any other film, like inside of like 15 minutes, this film endeared itself to me with not one, not two, but three very, very Reed Lackey intersections at, that it just drops as cultural touch points for this. I'm curious if you would know what any of them are, and they all happen in the first 15 minutes of the movie. You love asking me questions <laughs> that are like, hey, there's a lot of thought that that should go into a proper answering of this question. And I didn't prep you for it, Nathan, but go ahead. <laughs> but what go do you think? <laughs> I'm like, I, hell if I know. No, no, no. I don't okay. know. Okay. Is there right. a Paul so Simon I'll... reference? Is there oh, a Dylan reference? Oh, 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 Is there oh, 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 oh. a, Is... I know, I know Simon gets some play in here. So, Simon so one of them that I will, I will give you the point for is Mrs. Robinson is prominently featured as yep. they're driving mm-hmm. down. And that is Simon and Garfunkel song. It's actually the first Simon and Garfunkel song I ever heard. So love that. Um, and, uh, it's when Cliff and Rick are driving was home. Because an older woman was trying to, Wow. Don't, you know, you're not going to ruin that song for me no matter how hard you try. So, uh, so, uh, so the other two, um, one of them happens. Uh, hey, I love that song. Um, one of them happens right in the opening scene. Um, when Kincaid is done talking to Cliff and Rick, he says, he specifically says, Remind me who's Kincaid? Kincaid is the interviewer right up at top. He's like, you think you might be seeing double, but you're oh, just seeing yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. And so, and then I love that he says he has an upcoming in, uh, interview with Maury Amsterdam and Rosemary, which are two characters from the Dick Van Dyke show, Buddy and Sally. And I was like, oh my God, it's one of my, it's, it's one of my favorite TV shows. It's my favorite <laughs> comedy from the era. And he's, he's talking to Maury. He's not just talking to Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. No, that's the easy one. He's talking to Maury Amsterdam and Rosemary, Buddy and Sally, the side <laughs> kicks of the show that's that yeah yeah is a deep cut that i loved and appreciated so much the third one which uh, astute listeners to this show might have picked up on like oh reed probably loved that is that as they're pulling into their driveway we already had dick van dyke show reference we already had mrs robinson drop and then you're gonna play a commercial for the illustrated man by ray bradbury come on oh now. yes like, i did come yeah. on. yes yes so, i did catch that and yes. i wrote it down but see, I didn't understand the context of the... I, I didn't have a grid for what you were asking me. Okay. All right. No, no, that's okay. That's all right. But I love those so much. So just had to give some love to... Yeah. To, yeah. to those. Um, there were two people, again, in the interest of Trivial Bit, there were two people who were supposed to be cast in this. One of them was cast and did the reading, um, who were hmm. who were intended to be part of this film that did not get the chance to be... Um, I'll mention the lesser one first. Bill Paxton was who was supposed mm-hmm. to be 
the actor that Timothy Oliphant wound up playing uh, oh, the character. Wow. Yeah, that okay. was supposed to be Bill Paxton, but Bill Paxton died in 17 when Tarantino was in the early drafts of this film. So he envisioned the character for Paxton. Paxton died in 17, so that so that didn't play out. But making it all the way to casting, making it all the way to table reads, making it nearly to filming some scenes was Burt Reynolds, who was supposed to be the um, Bruce Dern character. He was supposed to be the one who is living on Spawn oh, wow. Ranch okay. that they're all taking advantage of. Um, so that was supposed to be Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds actually, in fact... Burt Reynolds does have a contribution um, to the script. Brad Pitt does not like when he's on set. He does not like people calling attention to his attractiveness. Um, don't ask me why. That's for his therapist to. Un- but it is a, it is a known fact that he does not like in movies or whatever of people making a point to point out how attractive he is. Um, and so the line. When it said, I feel that way too. I know, no, I know, I know, and <laughs> for good reason. Um, and so, yeah. so the line where they say you're too pretty to be a stuntman, that was actually something that Burt Reynolds suggested. Like that's what they should say to him: "You're that's too pretty funny. to be a stuntman." And Tarantino liked it so much he left it in. And I think Pitt didn't object out of respect for Reynolds um, and and his memory. Last note on that bit is that those are ter- those are characters who sh- who were intended to be in the movie that didn't make it. Um, Luke Perry was in in the mm-hmm. film and filmed his scenes and then sadly died uh, the same year he filmed his scenes uh, of a, a very tragic stroke, I believe, took his life. Um, so, yeah, man. Well, I feel I feel like, you know, you're going down the casting hit list here and to throw some fear of God intersections here. I mean, I was like, friggin Jill Garvey. What? No, oh, uh, right. I totally yeah. had forgotten. Well, in fact, I've seen leftovers since us or, or rather. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood post seeing Leftovers, and I don't know that I made that connection. Interesting. The first time I saw the film. Oh wow! Um, Did you catch her, the other? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're gonna. You're Victoria gonna get... Pedretti, Absolutely. who is in yeah. The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. and friggin' Maya Hawk. She yeah. shows up at the end. I was like, what? Yeah. That was great, and I loved. I loved that she turned tail and ran. I was like, get on out of here, girl. <laughs> She's like, I'm do the leaving. right, do the rightest thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. That was great. There's also, was did great. you catch so, um, Danielle Harris in it? Very, very short role, but did you catch her in it? I don't even know if you've seen no, enough of it. I don't, I don't know her as well yeah. as you would. Um, but yeah, she's also she's one of the hippies. She's, but also, I was naming Fear of God intersections. Read well, Has we've covered something. We've, we've covered, covered Halloween. I mean, in fairness, what? she's in the franchise of Halloween, Halloween, but no, she's not in. Been on one of the no, entries that see? we. Yeah, uh-uh. I know, that's nope. fair. That's fair. Because for the, by the same token, I could have said, "Oh, Lena Dunham, who's oh. in Girls," but we didn't cover no, that. That's a good or point. Anything that's else? A good she's point. Been. No, that's a good point. Right? See. Okay. So yeah, there's some really fun casting sort of that's happening all <laughs> over this film. I'm sure there's even some that we have unintentionally oh, overlooked. But um, sure, Michael Madsen finally doesn't die. There's all kinds of yeah. It's all this stuff. Yeah. 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 Kurt Russell, <laughs> Damian Lewis. God, I love uh, Kurt Russell. Love Kurt Russell so much. You mean Randy? Mm-hmm. All right, Randy. <laughs> so can I can I throw out here? Can I Oh oh okay. Nathan, I mean Nathan's I don't have back. like powerful I don't have powerful things to say. I just think in the what are your thoughts on this movie? What are your feelings on this movie? All right. I'm ready. So, you know, I here's the thing. Here's the thing, Reed. The thing. So, years ago, when American Sniper was out, 
mm. random pivot. This that, mm-hmm. I went to see American Sniper, made the mistake of watching it on an anniversary trip, and we went <laughs> listen to this double feature. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my poor wife. We saw uh, Bradley Cooper's American Sniper and <laughs> Ava DuVernay's Selma. In the oh double my, feature weekend. Oh my god! Yeah, like yeah, on your yeah. anniversary yeah. weekend. Oh, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Don't here's, ask why. My wife. Here's the thing. I like I like Selma quite a bit. I don't like sure. American Sniper. I was about to well, say you're you're stealing the thunder here. Well, no, yeah. the joke I was about to make is so so you don't just see you know terrible movies with me, but then you cited Selma, and I was like, Selma's a great movie. So, like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So I went and saw American Sniper because I want to. I want. I want to be compassionate. Read. Last week, we talked about virtues in Calvary. I want to be kind. And I don't have a deep bench of love for Clint Eastwood's stuff, which it, sure, it's more sure. A new, it's more neutral. It's more neutral. It's not like animus. Yeah. And I went to see American Sniper and probably like an hour into it, I was like, nope. <laughs> just, just, it's not for me. This is not for me. This is propaganda. I don't like it. Uh, wow. I finished it and I felt bad about it and I wished I hadn't watched it. And wow. I kept thinking about the stupid person I'd seen on Facebook who was a friend of mine in high school, which is why we're not really friends anymore, because you're not really friends with people in high school just because Facebook. That's not how <laughs> relationships work. Uh, who had said something like, I watched American Sniper, and I was so thankful for America. And I was like, uh-uh. Um, so where I'm going with this is just to illustrate the point that I learned a valuable lesson that day, which okay. was there there is truth to the notion that some things just aren't for you. Like, sure. my tastes mean I will not like American sniper or anything that has a propagandistic aspect to it related to American military stuff. Enter Quentin Tarantino into this thing, <laughs> into this, into, in, into this grid, which is to say Quentin Tarantino, not like, no, nobody's going to be like, I don't think Quentin's a good filmmaker. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> going to do that. No one on the planet is going to say that. So I'm not saying that by any means, that's not even where I'm tiptoeing up to. However, I reached a point circa hateful eight when I was like, mm. okay, Quentin, let's, let's, let's do this thing again. And I've always been an appreciator, but not a devotee. Okay. Uh, kill bill. I don't know that I had the proper appreciation for, for its time, but even it, I wrestled with the the opening sort of experience Uma has had while under was an extreme turnoff for me. And I never totally recovered, which is not fair to the film. No, but I understand. Yeah. So you can see this kind of rolling thing that happens with Quentin's films where it's like, Oh God, hateful eight kind of threatened the entire exercise for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to see it. Of course it's well-made. Nobody is going to question the, the aptitude uh, and not just aptitude. That sounds like competence. I don't mean competence. I mean excellence at film craft. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I was so, I felt so gross and dirty after Hateful Eight. And it felt okay. like, yeah. it felt to me like, okay. It felt like Amer- American Sniper did, which is mm. I may have reached my, my my parting of ways, which is to say, I just don't know that these are for me and that's okay. That's okay. Mm -hmm. I want Mm -hmm. to be a fan of films, but you got to know your, your weaknesses, I guess sometimes, or your limits rather. And so kind of, kind of was ready to just be like, well, I don't know. I guess, I guess it is (laughs) what it is. Mm -hmm. And yo, so that, what that means is I didn't watch 
Hollywood in the theater. Mm. Um, mm. I just didn't know. Maybe it was time or, you know, kind of disposable time, as it were. And I can't remember what finally tipped me over. I don't know that it was really a, oh, so in this one person or you or whatever said, this is great. You should watch it. It was more just, okay, well, let me get back on the horse <laughs> and see what I find here. And I will say this for me. This is a Nathan thing. This is not going to be for the devotees, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. Mm, I love it. Big words. I got to the end of it the first time, and I thought, wow, I loved that. And what's hysterical, and Hunter's going to roll his eyes through the back of his head and then back up again, (laughs) is I didn't even really know that it was rooted in a true story. I just didn't know. I didn't know. Mm. I wasn't watching it with that matrix in view with that rubric in view. I was just like, Oh, it's a new QT movie and Brad and Leo are getting a lot of love and I'll check this out. So I didn't know the story of Sharon Tate or if I did, it had been lost to me over time. Mm. Uh, I didn't Mm -hmm. kind of perceive. And so I had no expectation of the outcome of this movie. Yeah. Um, To the point that I'm the dummy, and I'll own it, I'm the dummy who didn't know that when they're referencing Charlie the first time that it's Charles Manson. Oh, I just, I, uh, again, mm, I had no mm, clue. I had mm-hmm. no clue. Just wasn't even thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, but because of that, it really read. FYI, if you don't know any of that stuff, that scene is really tense. It's already pretty tense, but mm, it's really mm-hmm, tense when mm-hmm. Brad's out at that ranch. Yes. Or at sure. the, the lot, whatever it was. Um So anyway, all that to say, it wasn't until I finished the movie and had great affection for it then that I then was like, oh, wait, what? (laughs) 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 Kind of went like that. Like, wait, what? Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) You're like Brad Pitt standing there when Tex is like threatening him. He's like, no, it wasn't. It wasn't that. It was something. It was something dumber than that. (laughs) No, it was something dumber than that. (laughs) What? What the (laughs) finger gun pointing? (laughs) He said, I'm the devil. Like, no, it's dumber than that. Oh my God. He's so friggin' hysterical in this movie. Um, Oh my God. So, so now rewatching it, I was like, okay, let's see if, if my first opinion holds and dad gummit, this is just, it's just fun. And, and in a way that I'm, uh, QT diehards won't let me in the club and I can respect that. I, I get it. I'm probably, I probably don't, I haven't earned my place there, but it did reassert for me. I was like, okay, mm. awesome. Mm. This dude is mm-hmm. so good at what he does. Mm-hmm. And this piece, at least I can really dive in on and I can champion and that yes, was a cool sure. feeling to once again have. I say once again, like there was one singular movie. It wasn't so much that more just. Um, so other than the opening 15 minutes of Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> which is just uh, incredible. God, that's incredible. incredible. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, in total. Yeah. I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it's hysterical. I think it's got a joyfulness to it mm-hmm. that is unexpected mm-hmm. for what I have gotten sure. of old yes. Quentin over the years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, that, that's, that's kind of my experience uh-huh. of once upon a time in Hollywood. What about you, Riri? I'm happy for you. So, you? um, so I have, was that I have, sarcastic? no, that was not sarcastic at all. Sin- sincerely. Cause you know so, what? Oh, <laughs> my nuts. So, <laughs> <laughs> 
poor Brandy. She's a fine girl, but oh man. <laughs> no, she is not. She's, oh my god. She's so we, let, let's wait. Wait on the finale. Wait on the finale. Yes, we need yes. that needs to be its own oh, its own it pocket. Does. It does. Okay, so my Quentin Tarantino history leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know that I would count myself among the QT devotees. I have seen every film and I have loved most of them. I share your feelings of Hateful Eight, although probably the most excited I have ever been. I, I remember very distinctly, I was, I had a babysitting gig that night and it was, it was not a gig like that I had to pay for, but it was something we were just doing a favor for a friend. Their children were already asleep, but the, but they needed to be out of the house for like four or five hours. And so I was like, okay, I'll come over and I'll stay and just make sure that everything's okay. And I had like literally like four or five hours where the kids were going to be asleep and I didn't need to do anything but just sit there. And I was like, ooh, Hateful Eight has come to video. I'm going to watch this. And I remember like the opening moments of Hateful Eight. I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited to be watching a Quentin Tarantino film right now. And I did not like that movie at all. I shouldn't say at all. There's things about it that I that I kind of appreciate, but, no, but most no. Um, Pulp Fiction was a watershed moment for me. I loved Pulp sure. Fiction. I thought Pulp Fiction was brilliant for a long time. It not only ranked as my favorite Quentin Tarantino film, but it was one of my favorite films writ large. Loved it. Didn't respond to strong- soundtrack. <laughs> it really is. That's one thing that Tarantino is just completely on point for. He always has the best soundtracks. Um, Reservoir Dogs, not as big of a thing for me. Uh, Jackie Brown, I respect more than enjoy. I did ride the Kill Bill wave like all the way, and I enjoyed to a great degree Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. Um, but all of them have always been one thing that I will say this is going to probably feel a little weird for a second. I put Tarantino on the same shelf that I put M. Night Shyamalan. Very different styles of filmmakers, but they are distinct visions, and you know. You're in for something probably very different. You may not like it. You may love it. You it, it, Whatever. But you're in for something that is very definitively them, and it's going to have their characteristic style, and it's going to be original. It's not going to be cookie cutter. And that for that, I really love and appreciate Tarantino's work just sort of writ large. I will say this, putting my critic's hat on, n- he will never make a film more influential than Pulp Fiction. He will never make another film that that changes cinema history the way Pulp Fiction changed cinema history, and it did. Pulp Fiction changed the way sure. some people make movies. So he, you know, it it maybe in that regard deserves it. But I think just as a singular film outside of time, I would contend that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is not only possibly my favorite Quentin Tarantino film. I think it might be his best. I think it might be his most mature and assured as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I think it might be one of his most richly complex thematically. And I think the characters are so well drawn and so fully realized. And he has populated his films with some really great characters over time. Um, but I think Hunter hit the nail on the head that it is one of his most sentimental films. Um, I think... I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is fantastic, and I can say that it is going to be on the shelf for me right next to Pulp Fiction as probably one of the two Quentin Tarantino films that I most regularly find myself wanting to revisit. I'll queue up Pulp Fiction for fun. I enjoy watching that movie. That movie's fun. Um, Is that right, Honey Bunny? (laughs) Uh, Yes. Pumpkin? Pumpkin. (laughs) But, um... 
I'm trying real hard to be the shepherd. Um, so the, uh, <laughs> but no, like once upon a time in Hollywood, getting getting back to it, like we're we're showering a lot of information about Quentin Tarantino. Like once upon a time in Hollywood's a great film. This is this is a fantastic film. I have heard. I'm going to give this some lip service, but honestly, don't really want us to explore this too much unless it comes up again organically. I have heard some criticism labeled at this film as like, oh, this is just white male fantasy put up on screen. And and for that reason, it's kind of propaganda. Sharon Tate is just sort of relegated to the side, the treatment of Bruce Lee. I've heard people criticize it as being just like, no, this is just like white male propaganda thing. And those who feel that way about the film, I can't really engage the argument because so much of it I can't really see in it, but I did want to give lip service to the fact, not merely lip service, that feels reductive, but just acknowledge the fact that that argument is out there. That having been said, that's not my response to this film. I love this film. I love a ton of things about this film. Um, This film really excites me. It energizes me. And now I would love to just like get into a bunch of stuff that is just great about this movie because I love it so much. Well, you know, that's a really really cogent segue read mm, that mm. Per- permits permits us to invoke some things that i don't know about once upon a time in hollywood are well more than being not wrong read are in fact so right <laughs> that's so right it's just so right it's just so right that's just so that was so good that was so good oh man all right what you got let's do two each what you got oh okay let me do two each oh did i throw you for a loop did i throw you for a loop well um let's do it throw a well what i'm gonna do a can at your face and pop you a little bit a little bit of I try. <laughs> God, um, I love that character so much. So my number one, like there's a, there is a, there is a high volume mm. of so right about mm-hmm. this movie. Honestly, I think my top thing, and there are close seconds, but what does come out ahead is Leo's performance. It is Leo's likely I did this homework today. I scanned this. I scanned Leo's oeuvre. Mm-hmm. And I think this is my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. Like it it's is so mm-hmm. his, his willingness to kind of go for broke with, well, and not even just the vulnerability he shows in, in the moments that he does, but he's asked to do a lot. It <laughs> is as Rick off camera be incredibly vulnerable and and you know i mean goodness borderline bothersome and annoying Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh to actually playing the leading man Mm -hmm. when he's on as well and and i just love i love love so much of one and and maybe in tandem with that is that i don't know 30 minute run smack in the middle of the movie that is the movie within the movie oh like yeah that is the, just the filming of lancer yeah a hell of a lot of fun mm-hmm. um so i love the scene with him and mirabelle the eight-year-old so great it's just so great i mean like that is that really is kind of special cinema magic mm-hmm. the, 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 mm-hmm. the interaction they have 
the the dynamic that 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 builds that has this incredible payoff um when she congratulates him on a job well done mm. basically mm. it's it is mm. just um <laughs> that was the best acting i've ever seen in my whole life and he just breaks down um tears up before you leave I, that I moment before you leave yeah, that yeah. moment I, so I'm just going to share it with you and I'll, I'll use a different one. That was my number one is I wrote down Rick's reaction to finally getting his scene right. That was my number one. And that's so right is, is so when good. he's sitting there with the, and he's just like Rick F and Dalton. I love it so much. It's so great. It's it, and, and you're right. Leo just knocks it out of the park. I, I love that moment so much. It might be my favorite moment in the film. Honestly, like I love it. I love it. Well, so that much. whole run, I mean him back in his, in his trailer, mad at himself, yeah, you know, just just yeah, I, I love that entire, which is a completely improvised section, scene. section there. That's a that, that's huh. like a an op- that's a widely publicized fact at this trivial fact at this point that because Tar- Tarantino doesn't let his actors improvise. So it, you you read his script, he's put time into his script, he's done the work. He will not let you improvise, but he let Leo improvise that entire trailer scene, and then they spliced little bits of it together so that's all just leo that's cool unbridled and it's it's really great stuff yeah all right you pick one um okay specifically there's a moment but i just i love the whole scene but specifically there's a moment old unassuming cliff standing right there he's like hey does george george still live here and they're like yeah george still lives here and he goes does he still live Right there, <laughs> this is like tilts his little finger. Like, Still live right there, and, he, and then he's Did like, you just "Say a Brad Pitt tilts his little finger." Like, is that what you just said? Uh, yeah, but that's he's, a really he doesn't like his attractiveness called out, but you don't have to diminish his fingers. Listen, I didn't. Okay, you <laughs> highlighted the wrong moment. I know. I know. So, um, I'm just playing. But the but honestly, like that moment specifically is a hinge point for me about you know if I was gonna my official that's so right is the whole scene at Spawn Ranch. That you know, like that oh, is God, that so that whole scene at Spawn Ranch, but specifically, like Cliff in that scene is so assured. He knows everything. He knows way more than they do, uh, or than that than they know that he knows. Um, he is very attuned, very on point, and I just love his confidence and his assurance in that scene. Honestly, you talk about the tension of the scene, and I, I myself was very nervous during the scene but brad pitt's assuredness during the scene almost like i'm just like i don't know what's about to happen but brad pitt's about to f somebody up (laughs) i'm like he's he's gonna take Mm. somebody out um so i just i i I just love that whole scene that whole sequence at spawn ranch is just fantastic and honestly i think it's some of that stuff in there i mean he delivers a great performance throughout but i think it's some of the stuff in those moments that uh that won pitt his oscar for it um yeah. So, because I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's one of his, you praised Leo's performances. Brad Pitt is a great actor. And I think this is one of Pitt's finest performances. You know, I don't sure. know that I'd, yeah, I'd yeah. cite it as the best, but it is up there. It is an outstanding, outstanding performance. <laughs> Some of his deliveries are so good. Let's do this. Can we, mm-hmm. much like we did with Endgame, because I'm looking at my That's So Right, and some of them, some of them dabble in the finale. Can we set aside that? 20 30 sure, minutes sure 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 and, yeah. and address mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. kind of outside of that's so right so i do think um if we're picking two that's so rights uh you know what ain't right reed what ain't right you know what ain't right what ain't right is the foley design for the dog food 
It's so nasty. God, it's so gross. <laughs> it's so not right. It's so all them slurpy sounds. Even yeah, yeah, even Brandy sitting there licking her lips. And she's like, <laughs> I mean, like yeah, it's. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot the dog's name was Brandy. Um, Reed, Reed. You know what's so right? What's <laughs> so right? Is like, I don't know. I thought about Reed and Nathan. I thought about all Wacky oh. Rouse watching this movie, oh. and I don't think I. I would like to think there's no there's no. Uh, uh, space in which our friendship would come to an end, but I was like, well, what if the show ever came to an end? Aww. And I, I wrote down verbatim the um, the voiceover as Rick and Cliff are wrapping up their European mm. adventure. Mm. And it says, it was the end of an era for both of them. When you come to the end of the line with a buddy who's more than a brother and a little less than a wife, getting blind drunk together is really the only way to say farewell. That's so <laughs> great. Like, if the moment God, that is ever so great. comes that the show ends, that's what we're going to do. We're just going to get blind we're drunk. We're just going to get blind drunk. That's right. Sit in <laughs> and the And then back. we're just going to relaunch a new show. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We'll sit in the back corner of a nice bar somewhere or a nice restaurant somewhere in Hollywood and slam back whatever. Yeah. I'll have my Bloody Marys. I drink Bloody Marys the same way Cliff I'll does. I'll have my... Yeah. Acid dipped cigarette. Sure. Yeah. Um, oh, whoa. <laughs> but, well, <laughs> 50 hey. cents. And away we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do. But at the same time, that's a singular moment in the movie. But pointing to where I could theoretically go when we get a theme, I I kind of love the friendship these two characters have. Yes, I, I love the, you know, the, it's very not just brotherly. That feels actually too reductive. But it, it's it's very giving. It's very mm-hmm. like they. Um, for, uh, despite it being so set in a environment where transaction one-upmanship sort of tit for tat is the rule of the day, this is a, a, a relationship very much built on mutual respect and affection. Yes, you know? absolutely. Uh, there is, uh, maybe you could argue some codependence, but we're going to ignore the negative aspect <laughs> there. <laughs> so, but, but no, I, I just love, I love that aspect of it. Well, and I'm going to I'm going to piggyback off of that for my that's so right for my final that's so right moment. Um piggybacking off of that, I made a joke to it in the very first part of the scene. I mean, it's 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 the big meme now. Boy, Leonardo DiCaprio cannot escape a meme. Um but specifically a meme from Quentin Tarantino films because the other one is the one from Django Unchained where he's like, you know, like the, Oh that, yeah. <laughs> <that> just, <laughs> but then the other one is like where he snapped yes, his fingers right. he's like, "Oh, oh, oh." Um but that moment, I tell you what, it just warms my heart, man. It just warms my heart. And speaking of your yes anding your identification of their generosity as friendship is when they pull up into his driveway. And this entire scene is what I'm citing is that that's so right. And it's got the finger point in it and everything. But it starts with Leo almost vulnerably saying, you want to you come in and watch my FBI? And I just love Cliff doesn't meet a beat. He's like, well, I just figured we would. I've got a sit pack in the back. I thought we could order a yeah. pizza. Oh, it's I'm so just good. like, oh my God, that's fantastic. And just like how much fun. And you want to talk about like you and me in the old days. Like I could absolutely see us being that. I mean, you know, it, we're clearly Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. You're better looking. I'm the better uh-huh. actor. And so, you know, like that's the way this goes. Hey, 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 <laughs> no, shots kidding. fired. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally joking. But like, you know, they sit in there and then I love that the film just you know, like it shows he snaps his fingers and then Brad Pitt's like, oh, oh, hey, you know, like he assumes this like relaxed position of like, yeah. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm going to be attentive, it. you know, and then, <laughs> well, you know, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say and while they're showing the FBI scene, they're still talking over top of it. Like, look at him chewing gum. Yeah, strong. You know, like, <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I 
love, I love when Leo's like, oh, that guy's a f- prick. And then, you know, it's just like he is airing the dirty laundry of his, the extras or the co-stars or whatever. Yes. It is hysterical because let me tell you, brother. Yeah, that happens. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that guy was a real jerk. Uh, so I hated working with that dude. Man, yes, it is fantastic. It is so awesome. So that whole scene, man, I just God, I, I, I love that moment so much. It's just, yeah, it's just great. So, yeah, that's so right. Just so right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my gosh. So um I we Let have me not- ask you, do you have do, what? Please go ahead. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked about Sharon mm. yet. Can we talk about Sharon? That's true. Um let's talk about Sharon. I did know going into the film, and I will save my thoughts on the ending until in, until we properly get there, but I did know going into the film. The true story of Sharon Tate. One note that I love, I love that when Margot Robbie goes in as Sharon Tate to watch the movie, it's not Margot Robbie, you know, CGI'd on top of Sharon Tate thing. It's it's Sharon Tate mm, up yeah, there yeah, yeah. on that. Yeah. I love that. I love that touch. Um, it is worth noting that when they thought, when they found out, when um, I believe it was Sharon Tate's sister, I want to say, um, found a, a member of her family found out that Tarantino was making this film, uh, there were a lot of reservations because you hear, oh, Tarantino's making a film about the Manson murders and your brain goes all mm-hmm. kinds of places. Remember, Hateful Eight was his last film. So it's like, okay, sure. like what in the world is this going to be like? But they specifically, like he set up a script reading for her sister and uh, Margot Robbie visited and they they spoke and, and they they talked about Margot Robbie's investigation into the character and research behind uh, performing the role. And uh, Sharon Tate's sister was so won over by what had happened that uh, she even lent some of Sharon's jewelry for Margot Robbie to wear in the yeah. film and just like, you know, completely got on board for, yes, I love this. And um, and so I just, I, I love her presence in the film. I love Margot Robbie. She's very angelic in the film. She's got, I mean, she's just luminous in terms of just physical appearance as well, but also a tremendous grace to just the way she carries herself. And um, and I I love so much that about her. I understand when people are like, well, he he barely gives her any dialogue and he doesn't give her much to do. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. I get the complaint. Um, and I'm not even trying to be dismissive. I get the complaint, but there's such a such a reverence that I perceive, knowing what her real story was. I perceive such a reverence treated for that character, and I I could not love more the way he revises her story and gives her another ending. I just I I, I love it so profoundly. That is stepping up into the ending, so I'll back off from it. But yeah, I I love. Sharon in this film, love Margot Robbie in it. Well, and I think it's, I think it's fair then to, unless you uh, would suggest otherwise, can we just talk about the finale mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. go into sort of where you're steering right there? Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. I think, <laughs> I think one thing I loved about my first viewing of this film was, again, really knew nothing about it, knew nothing about the real world tethers it had, um, knew nothing about thus its intent. Uh, and for its two hours and 40 minute runtime, it's pretty, when you know, Tarantino's catalog, it's pretty mild. 
you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of its extremities. Um, it's clearly him, uh, kind of a love letter to cinema, love letter to Hollywood itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hollywood and, in the and the kind of inner, in, inner workings of it. And so mm-hmm. that feels very much of a piece. But if you've seen Hateful Eight, if you've, heck, even seen Pulp Fiction, most of his films that have, if not violence itself, extreme levels of violence. Right. You are... Right. Kind of like, oh, wow, this is a sort of pastoral, kind of thoughtful mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. piece here, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I remember it was kind of like, it is uh, not nearly so thoughtfully made, but similar in rhythm. Malignant. It is... Mm. This preceding two thirds of a film have happened uh, with 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 Hollywood. I'm very much enthused and excited. Malignant. I'm like, wow, wow, yankee smackety, whatever. I, I don't know. <laughs> but then a turn happens. A turn happens, and I am like, what? What? Oh my god! Oh my god! You are. It is. You're Leo snapping and pointing at the screen like WTF. What is happening right now? And it just <laughs> oh, keeps escalating. Mm-hmm, so let's mm-hmm. let's unpack that. I mean, I I texted you Leo's line when he's banging on the when he's <laughs> banging on the hood of the car with the margarita mix in hand. And, oh my god! Oh my god! So R- Brad Pitt's just performance in this run at the end oh, is it's, just it's amazing. It's amazing. It's a thing of it's a thing of beauty from a thing of beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Such as such as the Menko, <laughs> <laughs> such as Brad Pitt, and <laughs> um, when he is waving his hand at Brandy, it is. I mean, that's when it kind of starts. You're like, whoa, okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that happens, and then when they show up and he starts. <laughs> What did he say? He said, you are real, right? (laughs) (laughs) He starts laughing. Oh, my gosh. What is so impressive about that pocket of film, though, is like as comedic as it is, it's very tense, too. You're like, oh, I really don't know what is going to happen here. I was I mean, I'm just going to interject right there. No. Yeah, please. Knowing how things went in real life. You talk about that moment at Spawn Ranch, the finale, like the build up to the finale. Nathan, I, I could barely breathe. I was like, because because I, I knew the real story. I was like, oh my god, these people come in and they they, they just will you they, they for the listeners? <laughs> oh, for read, the listeners, will you, yes. Will you? So so I know the limits of or the extent of what I know mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Sharon was murdered in her home while pregnant. Uh, yes, yeah. effectively, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, there. no, just that's a look. Okay. No, nope, that's that's accurate. Is, yeah. is the divergence of the film simply that the perpetrators get mi- redirected? Is that effectively the so the, the turn? So, so yes, that is the main turn. So Sharon Tate was in her home entertaining some friends, and there was uh like somebody who was like a ranch hand that worked with you know, that worked with them with Polanski. Polanski was out of the country at the time, so he was not there, but she was entertaining some friends. And the scene that happens earlier in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where Manson shows up and is looking for like Terry, that is rooted in reality. Like that, that I think actually did happen. What, 
what is happening there? Uh, so all all he does is like Charlie Charles Manson just shows up and is just like, is Terry here? Does Terry live here? And Jay's like, yeah, like it, it's it's much earlier in the film. It's like midway through the film. Oh, okay. Um, and okay. then um, and then Jay Sebring is like, like yeah, let's get get out of here. Terry doesn't live here. Like get, leave, get out of here. Presumably that uh, actually happened. And then at a certain point, uh, Manson told his people to go there and kill anybody who was there. Gotcha. And so they they arrived and I don't know and 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 I'm certainly wouldn't even detail if I did know the the brutality of it, but I I am to understand that it was brutal. I am to understand that it was ugly and uh and five people lost their lives that night. And among them uh, a very very pregnant Sharon Tate. And um so when the build up to that scene, the whole bit, like the night, sure, like you can, sure. so, so, so f- feel this energy. Cause you didn't know the real story. Like feel the energy of that whole sequence where it's like, he keeps time stamping Kurt Russell's narration and Tarantino yeah, keeps yeah, time yeah. stamping. It's like at 11, something this happened. And then it, it feels almost like a dragnet episode. Like this is the build up sure. to the cataclysmic crime that you're about to witness. And then it's that, um, Sharon Tate is feeling melancholy she's feeling sad mm, you know? mm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and so like i'm sitting here like oh my god like what is what is about to happen now worth sidelining i had seen inglorious bastards at this point and he has a completely revisionist history ending sure, sure. in in that so i was like okay i, I know something different is going to happen i know i know maybe there's going to be a change but i but i had no idea what i was in store for with a tarantino movie like i had no idea you get you get a Reservoir Dogs where like everybody dies at the end. You get, you know, like he's made other films where you just never know how things are going to play out. And so I was super tense building up to that. So to even until the moment, until the moment when Cliff clicks his mouth, literally up <laughs> until that moment. It's amazing. I had such tension. And I think that was the moment that I breathed. Like, I was enjoying it because Brad Pitt is sure, sure, such yeah. a charismatic presence in that moment and his finger gun. And he's just like, <laughs> you know, like it just really like he's just doing this whole thing, but it wasn't. Nah, I, I was dumber than that. Oh my God. It's so great. But, the, <laughs> but I did not feel any relief to the tension sure. until the moment that he just, and then when he does that and Brandy finally takes out Tex and then <laughs> The other, the crazy one just comes running for him and he just chucks a can of dog food at her face. So and then, oh my gosh. And then, and then just it escalates, continue, continuing yeah. from there. You have Chekhov's gun. You have Quentin Tarantino's flamethrower. <laughs> you see it in the first act. Well, it's going to go off at the end. Brad Pitt's know? dog. But yes. Oh my yes. gosh. Yes. Well, and, and again, to that point, yes, you're, you're outlining the scene and, and, like for me personally, not knowing any of it and not knowing it's going to have this dramatic, <laughs> dramatic finale that the film has. It's oh just my like, gosh. Oh my God. This just <laughs> keeps going. And then he, he just, oh my God. He, he just cantaloupes that poor girl's head. Oh. It's disgusting. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's about it, right? If ever there was one. Oh my and gosh. Then the screen, the screaming chick out into the pool. Then <laughs> Leo almost he joins poop club in that moment. Uh, <laughs> Rick does. <laughs> he gets oh the flamethrower, and it's just like I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> Was the feeling it's watching so it the wild. first time because God, the brilliance so of the con- the brilliance of the construction of that film, the, the film Once Upon a Time Hollywood, is so versus. 
um, a Pulp Fiction, even a Reservoir Dogs, definitely. Like, there's a Hateful Eight, most assuredly. There is a sustained sort of high violence threat mm. element, at mm-hmm. work, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but you know these are these are violent people mm-hmm. uh, with violent personalities that are going right. to right. perpetrate violence against each other. Uh, Hollywood is not like that. I mean, again, no. the first two hours are pretty pretty straightforward but mm-hmm. fun mm-hmm. um you know and and so then when it does crescendo that way it is it is totally oh my uh, gosh uh, catches you off guard and then then like like brandy twixt your legs you're like oh my i cannot it will not let go of me <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh lord of mercy but it's, yeah it's 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 incredible no it's, incredible. it's it's really outstanding and you know like it's worth it's worth noting I will say this, and then maybe this will be a pathway for us into theme, is then after the bombast is done, you know, after everything has been, you know, calmed back down and Francesca's back asleep because she took however many sleeping pills, so she's back asleep. Um, and then Brad Pitt is being carted away to being take care of. God, I love his last line. You know, come see me tomorrow. Bring bagels. You know, like I just I love it. It's like you're a good friend, Cliff. I try. I try. <laughs> God, I love it so much. But um after that, and this is where I think the film really it already was something special in my viewing of it, but I think it even gets further elevated by the denouement of the piece. Um when Rick Dalton is standing out there and he says early on in the film, Man, I'm living next door to Roman effing Polanski you know like that's like yeah. that's who I'm living next to and he's like I could be one pool party from starring in the next Roman Polanski film you know and and then when he's standing out there and Jay Sebring is out there this is what this is what's so so glorious about it like he's I, I'll say this and 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 I'm not I'm I'm not gonna just like verbalize a thesis here but I think it's really interesting the way that Dalton and Cliff and Sharon sort of uh, have their their stories and their narrative hitches in this because Rick Dalton is a character just like thriving, struggling for, uh, uh, striving, not thriving, striving for relevance. And he's desperate to feel validated that he's like worth something, that he's good. Um, and then Cliff, man, don't get me started on Cliff. Like Cliff has all kind of layers to him. Maybe he's a psychopath. Maybe he's your best friend. Like maybe he killed his wife. Maybe I, both. Maybe both. Um, like you. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so then, um, <laughs> then you have Sharon, who, as we've already said, is given a very different ending than the, than the ending that she had in real life. And that moment when Dalton is like talking to Jay Sebring out there and he's like, oh, and Jay's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's like, well, yeah, I torched her because I've got a flamethrower back there. He's like, oh, from 14th <laughs> of McCluskey. And he's like, you, yes. <laughs> you know, like Dalton is really sort of like taken off guard that they know who he is or that Jay knows who sure. he is. But I just love it so much. I know it's a simple little touch and it's got a practical effect too. But the fact that Sharon's voice comes over the intercom, uh, almost as if it was from heaven. And I'm actually not trying to be hyperbolic or weird. Like, like it comes over the intercom. It's just sure. like, yeah. you know, and then Jay is like, you know, well, I'm talking to your neighbor right now. And she's like, Rick Dalton, you know, like, and just the, the emotionality, the sentiment around all of that is so warm. It's so delightful. And then uh, I love that that's the moment 
when and is like, would you like to come in and, and have a few drinks with my friends? Like she welcomes them in. That mm-hmm. That is such a beautiful thing given just, you know, she's gotten to enjoy Hollywood in this film. Sharon Tate as a fictional character has gotten to enjoy Hollywood. She gets to take, you know, a fun drive downtown. She gets to go see herself on the big screen. She gets to sit there and listen to other people laugh when she's funny and get thrilled when she has an action moment. And then she gets to leave that. She gets to go and and live in Hollywood Hills. And then she gets to welcome in, you know, the dreamers and the strivers like Rick Dalton. And that's the moment the title card, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, I just, I love that so much that that was the Hmm. final note of it. And I think there's something to be explored. How much we'll do it in this conversation remains to be seen. But I think there's something to be explored about the value that this myth-making kind of thing, you know, we've, we've, on this show, and I think right, rightfully so, have done our fair critiquing of myth-making to where uh, revisionist history can be a tricky, tricky thing, depending on who's doing the revising and why they're doing the revising. But I think particularly in watching a film like this, it can warm your heart to see, like, in, in our imaginations, in our spirits, we can imagine a different ending. We can imagine things going a different way. And um, and I find that particularly in a film like this, I find it particularly beautiful. I think it's really, really lovely. And uh, yeah, so it just, it just leaves me rattling all kinds of ways about like I did. I did have a question that I wrote down about this. Uh, is like the way that we intentionally kind of revise our own stories, constantly thinking about the ways things. Uh, I'll, I'll say I'll say it this way. I'm trying to contextualize the question. I need to just get to asking the question is how do these kinds of things help us or harm us in the near term? Um, and there's a song, there's a song by Paul Simon called rewrite. And I will quote one lyric from it, although I didn't write it down. So I hope I quote it right. Where the, the whole song, he says, uh, I've been working on my rewrite. I'm going to change the ending. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, I'm going to give it a title. He said, I might substitute a car chase. Uh, changed the ending, and he said, um, where the father saves the children and uh, he holds them in his arms, you know, and the whole song is about like, I'm going to, I'm going to work on my rewrite. This is the way my story was going. Now my story is going to go to a different place. And I'm just wondering if that, if we feel like that's a, a helpful exercise or if that is, is, um, is harmful to us in some ways. What do you think? I mean, I suppose like most things, it depends. I, I think we remind me cause I've seen the film once. Mm. What is the revision that inglorious does? I know um, the final scene. I just can't remember. I, I forget the, I forget the character's name, but well, I think the whole spy thing and the theater thing, that was all a fabrication. But then most specifically at the end, our, our heroes of that film, uh, are trying to assassinate Hitler and they succeed. They, they catch okay, him in the box and they, yeah. they blast him away. Yes. And I think for me, once a time, once upon a time in Hollywood is a much more, is a much more fully realized version of what he's after there. And so when you say helpful versus harmful or uh, whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, adjectives you use there here, here is the takeaway I had that, that, that is in, in the spirit of what you're asking is, once I kind of comprehended the film post first viewing, my kind of affection for it exploded even further from the standpoint of how kind of how powerful, how moving, how 
instructive. Mm. Um, it can be to watch someone use their craft, their skill, their, regardless of the output, I might say it, God given talent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to via a creative exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Make something right. <laughs> if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I do struggle with that with Inglorious, just because the, the, the extremity of the violence by the end of it, it it's hard to kind of, get on board with what's fascinating right. about this is it's actually circumventing real world violence right now the right. film itself mm-hmm. ends in a, a wildly violent <laughs> spree but <laughs> but even then it's almost just kind of circumstantial and rick and cliff's sort of evasion of violence against them is more just like <laughs> mm-hmm. you know wrong place right time you know <laughs> like right, right. They, oh i got a cannon in my hand i'm gonna chunk it at your head oh, oh i got a dog gosh. he's gonna bite you to shreds oh, my um, Lord. oh i happen to have this flame like they aren't willing violence upon others they're they're kind of responding in kind which is its own whatever but mm-hmm. the point being i'm incredibly moved and i think those of us who why once upon a time in hollywood kind of to me fits a what saves us kind of mold is like that's the whole exercise we've been doing for half a year man mm. is Mm. Oh, this movie saves you. What are you talking about? So-and-so person, Nathan Reed fog community person. <laughs> like, what do you mean that saves Jesus saves you? Like, well, I know what you think you mean, but what mm. I'm telling you is mm. the world is jacked up and broken and, and there's a whole lot of pain and suffering and despair. And yeah. we yeah. use the God given gifts we have to import into that broken space, a, a whiff of, truth with a capital T that someone who died tragically under terrible circumstances, let's, let's create a scenario in which that is not the reality. And I think that's a beautiful exercise. Um, and in fact, I'm just kind of awed at the fact that it is, it's an exercise. What's Mm -hmm. so staggering to me about this is, you know, like for me, tethering all this together tying this together weaving it all in a hopeful possible idea what i wrote is is friendship will save the world like Mm. we talked last week Mm. about detachment and an inability to cope with the cynicism and the weight of things Mm -hmm. what's so beautiful to me about this and i and i think to your point it, it could be a fair criticism that a movie meant to redeem the tragedy of sharon tate kind of maybe does a disservice to the character in the film. And that's Mm. perhaps fair. Um, But I think the exercise is, and that is such a laudable one is let me create a character dynamic in cliff and Rick, whose very existence in the world I'm fabricating is going to be the intercepting force to Mm -hmm. evil. Mm. And that when, I mean, damn, yo, when, when, Tech says, I'm the devil and here to do the devil's business. Mm. Read what is you made this comment a few weeks ago. What is more potent than saying, nah, you're dumber than that. Yeah. Oh, right? absolutely. absolutely. Like saying you will not have a place here. And that's incredibly <laughs> powerful to utilize an entire creative exercise, millions of dollars to mm-hmm. say, nah you're dumber than that you know like you're yeah, not gonna it win was dumber and than that's that. just really cool I, I i resonate so much with what you say you you probably have learned this in your travels did you know that that was 
actually what was said that they actually they act, that that line i i'm the devil and i'm here to do the devil's work or i'm here about the devil's business was something that the manson murderers actually said so what I, your, I, again i've done very little extra textual reading but it but in the moment i'm like i, I guarantee you that's real because of just how hmm. pointed they make yeah absolutely it. yes and that and, and so that's why like it's so much it's so completely true what you're saying is that like to go back to that it, it all it, it all the more emphasizes your point that he takes a real line a line meant to inspire horror meant to inspire fear and he makes it a joke and and he turns yeah. it into something where it's just like it's a <laughs> it's a really great disarming like no it was, it was dumber than that i couldn't agree more with you that like yeah it it defangs it literally defangs it like nah you're not <laughs> you you don't realize the story you're in. You think you're intimidating, but you don't realize the story you're in. And I love that. Well, and if I can throw one more sort of maybe powerful point here, that's kind of materializing for me in the, in real time is when I say friendship will save the world. What to me is very powerful is Rick and cliff are just being who they are with each other. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like it's oh, yeah. just about doing the business of goodness and kindness in relationship to others that is going to have wickedness ricochet off of it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. Oh wait, what, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Oh, there's a flamethrower. Do it. You know, it's like, it's just, <laughs> right. Right. It's really powerful. It is not, it is not a relationship orchestrated to vanquish wickedness. It is just <laughs> a relationship of, of mutual, compassion and generosity that, mm-hmm. that by its existence circumvents great evil. And I think that's yeah. incredibly powerful. Well, and there's metaphor. a, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's, there is, maybe we don't have time to have this conversation, but there is, I think a very real observation to be made that it takes real world violence and meets it with fantasy violence. I mean, we talk about how extreme everything is, but it is, it is almost so extreme that, it is absurd. It is not, sure. You know, yeah. you know, like it's like the it it is for comic effect to a degree. I mean, this but this mm-hmm. this poor woman is like flailing around, just like yelling and screaming, and goes running out. The she breaks through the glass door, like just running like a so funny, like a, one of those pop up foam little guys outside of a car dealership, like sure, ah, yeah, da, da, da. but screaming, yeah, yeah, but screaming, and uh, and so like it's absurdist. I do think again. I said earlier, and we don't have the time to unpack this, nor am I really smart enough to do so, but I said earlier that um, you know, this is one of his most thematically rich films. I think this is one of his most mature in terms of what he's doing with the characters and with the narrative. And I do think there's, there's a lot that could be unpacked or studied about him taking a story of real-world violence, tragic real-world violence, and meeting it with fantasy violence – to form a kind of catharsis, to form a kind of um, resurrection, as it were, uh, a, a redemption, if you want to to go that sure. route, yeah. um, and to applaud again. Maybe this is not the reason he picked up writing again, but to to applaud again, you know, Hunter taking up writing again, and why I think sometimes those stories that we make, I think. This is what I will say in terms of revisionist history and myth-making. I think revisionist history is dangerous and harmful 
when you try to tout it as if it were real. Like, no, this is what really happened. Look, you know, look here, don't sure. look over there. Like, when you try to tout it as like, when you try to erase. The election was stolen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry? When what? You, oh, oh, yes. When you try to erase truth with yep. with with revisionist history, also. that is that is dangerous. That is dangerous, and I would never affirm that. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is we all know what happened to Sharon Tate. Or if you don't know, you can very, very <laughs> easily find out. And so... You know, what, what happened to Sharon Tate is known. But now here we have an imaginative place to put our spirits, a, a, yep. a place that we know is imaginative, a place that we know. And, and I, oh, God, I know that this is a big, bold statement, but a place, you? I know me, a place not too far akin, maybe fourth, fifth, sixth cousin of it, but the kind of thing that can happen when we say the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a place to put our spirits that we look and say like, hmm. oh, but that's a that's a place that I can sit. And it's not in my mind, and hopefully nobody hears this, it's not in my mind an excuse or opportunity to ignore the tragic ugliness of the world. It's not in my mind sure. an excuse or opportunity to erase the 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 horrific things that happened to these real flesh and blood people but if i may it is a spiritual exercise an imaginative exercise a playful exercise to say but here is perhaps where we can put our spirits it it reminds me very much we've referenced it on the show before i don't have time to unpack all of it but it's very much the spirit in which the the if the film or the novel life of pi is delivered where it's like okay we can tell you the grisly, horrific reality of the story, or we can tell you this story. And Life of Pi's thesis, without going to too many details, because I'm already kind of edging into spoilers, Life of Pi's thesis is such it is with God. Like, which of these is the story where you want to put your spirit? You know, like, I, mm -hmm. we, can, we can wrestle down the – and th there is an, there's an ideological argument at play that says, okay, this is the gritty, ugly, nasty reality, and that's what you should be telling because that's the truth and that's the gritty, ugly, na nasty sure. reality. But like we have many times observed in many different cases on this show and others, well, that is what happened. That doesn't make it the truth. That is what happened. Amen. That doesn't make it the truth. And I think sometimes we need a place to be able to rest our spirits to be able to rest our imaginations. And I think the telling of stories, I think the writing of stories, myth-making, I think that can be a very fruitful place to do so. And I cannot emphasize enough again, when you then begin to promote falsehood as fact, that is not what I'm talking about. And hopefully right, listeners right, right. Yeah. can hear my framework to understand. I am not talking about touting falsehood as, as well, true. I mean, one is... One is imaginative and instructive. The other is deceptive. I mean, just. Oh, that's a great you know, way to put it. Is what it yes. Is. Yes. Yeah. I think there is a lot of health in, in the imaginative exercise of a place to put our spirits that, that allows us to know like, okay, yeah, there is a, the, the, there is a, an alternate possibility to, to this, that there is another way. Mm -hmm. And, and no, I do think that sometimes you have to deal with the gritty and grimy reality of it. But I think you get the strength. I think you build the strength and I think you get the courage and you get the, the stamina 
to deal with the gritty, ugly reality by dancing in these fields of play with these alternate takes, with these alternate things that might have happened, the the once upon a times of the world that like, mm-hmm. okay, these are the these are the stories, the fantasy stories, the fairy stories, the fables, the fictions. Um, Stephen King said, fiction is the truth inside the lie. And, and I feel like we, we need those. I think that it's very instructive. I think it's very psychologically healthy. And I think as long as we understand and recognize like, no, 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 we're not going to pretend something happened that didn't or something didn't happen that did. Yet, here we have a story, a place to put our spirits, a place to put our minds, a place to rest ourselves and say, isn't this a lovely story? Isn't this a lovely uh, alternate? Maybe it happened, and that's that's my feelings on it. That's my that's my takeaway on it. And I find I find it to be quite lovely in that in that regard. That's my my thoughts about it. Well, I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh huh. All right. So, so with that, it's late. Do you want to go? To You're the a good later? friend, Reed. I try. <laughs> God, I love, it. I love it so much. Yeah, let's do it. Fog meter. Mm, it is nothing. our very own metric, uh, a la Siskel and Ebert's thumbs. It is our fog. Uh, fear. Well, nope. Fun and God. Mm, <laughs> Look up there. Mm, you can mm. tell I don't do this one often. Mm. Uh, measured zero to ten. Uh, on the fun and the God meter in um, in what saves us, it has been, you know, a little bit of a, a nebulous definition of fun, but it's always a moving target anyway. Um, I will go first on the fun meter. I, I mean, it's kind of just damn fun. It's a fun movie. It's <laughs> it fun. Really like, it I is. enjoy the watching of it. There is, there's not even really like any dead patches you know like oh okay here's the scene i'm not gonna enjoy or i remember i gotta get to it to the next one like oh my god reed is it a 10 i think it's a 10 on the fun meter oh wow i love it so much you know why i love it Hmm. because i'm right there with you with your 10 this is a 10 on the fun meter i love this movie this is a this is a nearly three hour film that i could i could turn it on right now (laughs) i mean let's do it i'm tempted yeah let's do it let's not even finish the episode let's just let's just yeah yeah. see you guys yes but uh, before we do that, the God meter, Reed, what what would you rank the God meter on so Once Upon I, a Time in Hollywood? I do feel that this is Tarantino's most thematically rich film, that it's his, that it's one of his most substantive films. Jackie Brown gives it a run for its money in terms of just substance. Um, but it, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is really a fine work. I don't think it reaches quite 10 for me, although my affection for it would love to put it there. I think I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the God meter because I really think it is thematically rich and rewarding um you know maybe not the absolute best tarantino can do but definitely i think the best he's done so eight and a half for me on god hmm you know every now and then we talk about how like well we got things out of it that i'm not totally sure the creator intended and so got to temper a little bit i think i think in addition to the kind of quote-unquote love letter to hollywood i think he knew what he was doing I, I think, think what he was there doing. was Absolutely. intent to architect a story that redeems a tragedy mm-hmm. um, uh, or in, in, in the very lovely way you put it, lets us put our spirit there um, to sort of ruminate, to meditate, to even grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And 
kind of in that. I'm going to one-up you, bro. I'm going to go nine. I kind of mm. can't believe it. But mm. I think author intent kind of raises the game. Yeah. No, uh, I, I love it. I love it so much. And that means that we and give. that means that we give but, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, did you do the math too? Like, nope, nope, I did not. No, but that means we give it a nine and a half out of ten on the fog meter. Holy that's, cow. That's high. That's very, very high. That's staggering. You'd recommend this, yeah? <laughs> what if I was like, no, read. You, yeah, you know yeah, what? Yeah, yeah. You know what? what? Uh, uh, it's the end of an era for both of us. You come to the end of a line with a buddy <laughs> who's more than a brother, a little less than a wife, get blind drunk together. That's how you say farewell because yeah. he asks questions of you, but he doesn't really ask questions. He no. asks yeah. and answers the question in the same breath. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> you're You're wearing a hat, huh, Reed? I am. It's like, I can't yeah. even do it. I'm not even good enough <laughs> to figure out how to construct a question that is in itself its own answer. That's great. Yes, I'd recommend it. Why, you know, read. Hey, do you recommend mm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I do. I recommend it highly. See? It's a great that film. Is how you ask a question. <laughs> is it? Is it now? Hey, listen, I've been meaning to tell you this. What? You are Nathan fing Rouse, and don't you forget it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh man. So, you should have been like, you are Reed Fog and Lackey. Because see that you wouldn't have to bleep. Oh, that's right. I should have. But you know what? Oh, well. Now we have both. Right. A bleep that's, mime and we you did yours. We did. So so there it is. <laughs> um no so, so listen. What Hunt, are we doing next week? Hunter, this was great, man. Hunter, this was awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. This is super exciting. Um and thank you again for the opportunity to talk about this movie. Um, thank you, Nathan, for talking about this movie with me. Thank you, listeners, for thank sticking you, in. Mm-hmm. And um, next week, we are going to be going to a film. There, As we sometimes say, there will be a little bit of scheduling that has to align for this to be the case. But this is the plan as of now, so we're just going to speak it. Um, next week, the plan is to go to the most recent film by one Mr. Terrence Malick who has not been discussed on this show yet. Um, but next week we will be visiting not only episodes um, nine and 10 of Ted Lasso season two, but also Terrence Malick's a hidden life is uh, coming up as a, what saves us entry next week. So ladies and gentlemen, cue that up. We will hopefully see you there next week. And as we say on every single episode, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and not the end of the conversation. And in that spirit, we encourage you to fear nothing else and be on your way rejoicing. Amen. You know, what's funny is last time you said schedule has to work out. The listeners were rewarded with an mm. episode we weren't even on. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Well, that's, Maybe we'll, we'll see. I mean, that's yeah. not the plan now, yeah, but we'll, see, we'll yeah. see what nope. happens. It's not you the know? plan. No. Plan. 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 <laughs> plan. All right, everybody. We got to let you you next week. We'll see you next week. Bye. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for all the latest news and episodes or for merchandise and to contact us directly. You can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God, on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com for our artwork, to Lee Wright, who helped me, Reed Lackey, write our theme music, and to Tyler Smith at morethanonelesson.com for making our show possible. 
Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.